For a normal person, the hypothalamus is a fight or flight part of the brain. It's very good at what it do. But what happens is for the normal person, the hypothalamus tells the brain and goes to the prefrontal cortex, it's a survival instinct. I have to drink mm -hmm. water and eat food. That's why you'll often, you don't have to teach a baby how to eat. He's already got his fingers in his mouth trying to get something inside the body. It's a natural phenomenon that happens from birth. It just happens. But the alcoholic tells us to drink alcohol. And that's why an alcoholic can go days or a week without even eating or drinking water because it's purely alcohol. And people need to understand that the part of the brain is fighting against you. You see, the prefrontal cortex has one job and has to come up with a solution to your problem as quick as it can. And it's good. It does. The only problem with the alcoholic brain is it's always alcohol for mm. whatever reason. Happy days, sad days, good days, bad days, rainy days, sunny. It makes no difference. Hypothalamus tells me to drink. My gut feeling every day is, is, is there every single day, nervous citizen in the stomach. And what happens is the body becomes sick. The body then can't do without alcohol. The Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Podcast. Hey, thank you for checking into this edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. For this episode, Colt and I get on the line with Dr. Rob Kelly. Dr. Rob is an addiction expert, a psychologist, TV doctor, and an author. Dr. Rob is respected around the world as a leading consultant on addiction, and he shared some of his valuable time with us to discuss some of the many components of addiction and his experiences helping people get and stay on the right track. Dr. Rob has a very interesting perspective on recovery and some of the famous names that he mentions on the episode that have successfully used his services just may surprise you. So be sure to be on the lookout for that during our discussion. So without further introduction, we bring you Dr. Rob Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to yet another riveting edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. I am James, and with me as always is my good friend Colt. As always. And with us on the line today, Dr. Rob Kelly, addiction specialist. How are you doing today, Dr. Rob? Doing good, guys. Good to be with you both of you. It's going to be an amazing show. Life is good today. That's what we like to hear. We like to start off the morning knowing that life is good and knowing that there is help out there for some people who are suffering from things like addiction. And I am looking forward to this education myself. Um, I also work with uh, clients to some degree who suffer from addiction and co-occurring disorders and I am constantly looking for new resources and new experiences and new perspectives to help guide me. Um, but I know there's plenty of our listeners out there who, if they're not suffering from addiction themselves, there's someone in their family, there's someone they know, a friend, a coworker, someone, everybody knows someone who suffers from addiction. And we're going to get into the pervasive nature of addiction and things like that as we go along. But before we get too deep, we'd like to know more about you, Dr. Kelly. So if you could... Give us a little synopsis of your background, how you came to be an addiction specialist, and, and just kind of take take us off here and, and help us get to know you. No problem, James. Uh, my name is Dr. Rob Kelly, known as Dr. Rob. Um, I'm the addiction doctor. I, uh, I started drinking at the age of nine, and uh, I, I, was, I was in a musical family. So I, I was on stage with my aunt and uncle. Uh, so that, that was my introduction to alcohol at the age of nine because I was such a nervous child. I kind of still am a nervous guy. Uh, except when they get on TV or radio, something happens, and I, you know, I get excited about the program and excited about recovery because uh, you know I've seen I've seen so many deaths. So my schooling was good, which we'll go into more detail. University, well, I come from a trailer park, so or the the, the, the projects, a council estate. So we were very poor, 
Yeah, I went to Oxford. So many people go, how the hell did you do that? <laughs> well, I have the addictive brain. And we're going to get into that later because the addictive brain is one of the smartest brains around. So being a musician, I became a session musician at my local uh, recording studio. It was called Strawberry Studios uh, with uh, the 10 CC actually owned it. But I ended up at Abbey Road that put me through college uh, that then became, then became a doctor and uh, then became homeless. I mean, I lost everything at a certain point, the kids, wives, everything, and homelessness, and then came back and started to make uh, some noises in the addiction world because of my homelessness and my education. Went back to school again, got a PhD in behavioral science to add to my, to my degrees, and decided that A, I'm going to change the world, B, I'm going to educate everybody about alcoholism and addiction because it's still a dirty word and the most misunderstood illness in the world. And 14 years ago, I came to America and things just started to take off for me. You know, I got, a, I got a DVD deal, I got a TV deal, I got a radio deal. And then all of a sudden, before I know a day, I'm here in San Antonio. And uh, they call me one of the best minds in the modern addiction world. Or they also call me the Gordon Ramsay of the addiction world. Because <laughs> I tend to curse a lot when I get excited, which I won't do on this show, I promise you. But I do get excited because recovery is for everybody. And just like you said, James, you know, every time I go to Starbucks because of my accent, somebody will always go, oh, my goodness, where are you from? You're from England? And we start talking. And then they say, what do you do for a living? And I tell them, and everybody I spoke to, literally everybody goes, oh, my God, my uncle, my auntie, my brother, my sister. It's like everybody knows somebody. And what I always say is everybody knows somebody. And if you don't, it's probably you. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So and little uh, side note there. This is a, an open format show. So if you get excited and you feel the need to use foul language, please let her fly because uh, <laughs> we want to, we want to get the whole experience of Dr. Rob here today. And, and you're absolutely right. The, uh, the, the addiction is, is so pervasive. It's, it's, you know, somebody, and I love the point that if you don't know somebody, it's probably you. How often do you think it's actually to the, and you're going to get into the addicted mind, but how often is the does the addiction mask itself to where the person doesn't even realize that they're addicted while the addiction has such a strong grip on their on their mindset and as well as their their lives as a whole? If we're going to put a percentage on it, I would say about ninety percent don't really know because I didn't know. I mean, I went through the loss of everything. <clears throat> they took my children off me at the age of one and three. The authorities did. My wife left. You know, I lost the houses, everything, and then it ended up on homeless. I'm not homeless couch serving. I'm homeless sleeping in bus shelters and, and passing out underneath bushes and sleeping in somebody's garden. That's where I was. Still didn't think I was an alcoholic. Just mm -hmm. thought I was going through some bad stuff. And everyone kept saying, Rob, you're a chronic alcoholic. You're going to die. And it's like, I can't see it. I really couldn't see it. And, and one morning after being on the streets for 14 months, I dropped down to my hands and knees and I started to cry from my belly. It was raining and the tears and the rain was dripping down from my head. I was looking down and uh, I realized why I was crying. I wasn't crying because I'd lost my wife and my kids and my houses and my cars. I was crying because the first time in my life I realized I couldn't stop drinking. And that's what it took. Mm. And I see people like that today. I want to grab them by the scruff of the neck and shake them, but I can't because I know the pain they're going through. But people, it's very hard to stick your hand up and go, I'm an alcoholic or I'm a drug addict. It's very hard because society still doesn't accept it's a disease. It's the only self-diagnosed illness in the world. 10 DUIs do not make you an alcoholic or an addict. 
as soon as I put some stuff into my body, I act differently to the guy next door. And that's how you self-diagnose yourself. When you take the first drink or drug, can you stop and go home? Well, no. Boom. There's your self-diagnosis. But people don't know this. So they tend to treat alcoholics and addicts like lepers. You mm. know? And uh, some conferences that I go to, especially on addiction, I will interest. But I'm, I'm not anonymous, by the way. I don't give a shit who knows. I want everyone to know. But I suffered. I was homeless. I'm a chronic alcoholic, but I've recovered. Because I bear witness to the still people that are suffering out there. And I introduced myself at conferences uh, as, a, as a recovered alcoholic. That, that's who I am. Mm. So you, I, And I love being out there. Don't get me wrong. I love it. Yeah. So you say you've recovered. I know a, a lot of people who have gone through this kind of always say that they are always in recovery. Do you, yeah, do you agree with that term or no? Yeah. I, I, uh, well, it's like food poisoning. I've recovered from food poisoning. I don't keep saying I'm recovering or in recovery from food poisoning. That's true. There is no cure for both illnesses. So I also, when people say that, I go, okay, first of all, uh, if you look the word recovered up, and they go, uh, well, not really. Look it up. It, in the English, Oxford English Dictionary, it says to gain one's health and state of mind back. Well, most people in, uh, in the recovery go to AA. And we, they say you have a mental obsession with a physical allergy. So I have this madness of the mind with the body that's sick. So if recovered means to gain one's health, so I'm not sick anymore, and state of mind, I'm not insane with the disease, that's what it means. I'm mm. recovered from food poisoning. I'm recovered from a common cold. I'm recovered from alcoholism. I can still always get it. And the best analogy that I can come up with is my food poisoning story. I went to the doctor, got food poisoning. And I said to him blatantly, is there a cure for food poisoning? I don't want this stuff again. And he said, no, Rob, there's no cure for food poisoning. But let me give you a few simple steps to make sure that you never get food poisoning again. He said, you know, watch the dates on the meats. Don't reheat. And he was giving me this a few simple steps. I have never had food poisoning since. I've also never had alcoholism since. Right. You know, but they're both there. They're both active. And I have to take daily steps to make sure I don't get them. So I love the word recovered. Most people in AA, NA, CA always say I'm in recovery. Well, the literature that you read doesn't say that. It never says we're in recovery. It always says we've recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. We have solved the drink problem, all this positive stuff. But what alcoholics and addicts tend to do is they play on the negative side all the time. Oh, watch that pink cloud that you're on. Oh, be careful. Watch your ego. It's like, shut up, will you? <laughs> you know, if I tell you if I tell you something bad enough times, you're going to start to believe it. That's what the mind does. How about lifting somebody up? I've been on a pink cloud for 30 years. What are you going to do about it? And people go, oh, my God, this is what it is. In the early days of, of people getting wealthy in 12 steps rooms, they used to encourage people, man. And people got excited about this shit. They go, oh, my God, I can recover from this stuff. That's amazing. And they get a life back. And the guys in the corner that are always recovering are usually the heavy drinkers. They're not the alcoholics. And they're usually the, the heavy drug users who hasn't got a life and just goes to meetings because they've got no friends or they're gay and they want to meet somebody. And that's okay. But when someone's suffering, shut up. You've got <laughs> nothing to say to anybody. You know, knowledge is key in this game, but we just, everyone wants to put everyone down. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. In, in essence, and you can correct me if the terminology doesn't quite fit in your perspective, but it sounds like you hit rock bottom. And I know that's kind of a common term in uh, addiction. So people who finally come to terms with the fact that this is as low as they could possibly feel, as low as they could possibly get. And your recovery perspective also 
it, what it what it makes me think of if you're in recovery it's like you you don't get on that pink cloud because you don't want to get too far away from that rock bottom as opposed yeah. to remembering that time that was terrible that that time sucked i never want to relive relive that again i want to get as far away from it as possible and i, I guess the the prevailing wisdom is that if you do that then you are forgetting where you come from which might lead you back into the same path but you completely and adamantly disagree with that definitely if you if you the, 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 I talk about the uh, 12 step rooms and then the literature. You talk about a psychic change in 1939. A psychic change is changing neural pathways. So once we change the neural pathways in the head, away, away from self sabotaging neural pathways, which I'm born with, which we can get into shortly, um, then it's almost impossible to relapse. It's almost impossible to pick a drink or a drug up once them neural pathways have been changed. Mm. It's definitely a spiritual journey, I found anyway. Once a psychic change has occurred and a spiritual awakening, my DNA changes. Your DNA changes. Everybody who does it properly, DNA changes. I've been I've been in and out of college, universities, and schools, studying most of my life. Probably 22 years of studying. I studied Carl Jung as well. The best piece of literature, and it's public domain. Uh, uh, issues one and two is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The first one six four is the best piece of literature I've ever read. Hmm. And people go, "Yeah, Robert, you shouldn't be using AA." It's public domain, first of all, and I'm not using AA. I'm using the first one six four of the book. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous book, which has got so much information. I mean, it's, it was it's 70, 80 years before its time. Ten years ago, we found out in the medical fraternity that the, the brain is plastic. It's like plastic, neuroplasticity, they called it. Mm-hmm. We can change the neural pathways. Well, in 1939, when they brought the book out, they called it a psychic change, psychic of the mind change, a change of mind. It's the same thing. You know, we, we have to take all the neuroscience we can today with the teachings of the old days, put them together. And that's what my program's based on. We have a 97% success rate. Unheard of. Wow. Three to 5% is normally. We also, this is 100 grand, by the way, we also offer a money-back guarantee that if you drink or use again after going through our program and then continuing to work our program, oh, we fund your money. This has been here for 14 years. I've been in uh, uh, Texas. No one's claimed it yet. Still here if anybody wants to try. Wow. That's a, a high level of confidence there you have in the program, and, and I get it because you're not just uh, spitting wisdom from even just experience. You have some science to back that up, and I want to get more into the the science and, and maybe some of the specific ways that you create those neural pathways here in a moment. But before we go any further, I want to make sure that we understand exactly what addiction is. What is Dr. Rob's definition of addiction that uh, connects you to the people who you uh, provide services for. What does addiction mean? Addiction, addiction. Well, there's two forms of addiction: alcoholism and drug addiction. I'm not a belief that they're all the same. Alcohol acts differently on the brain than any drug do. Hmm. So here's my take on it: from 27 years of researching the brain regarding addiction, you are born an alcoholic. Alcohol reacts differently on the brain. During the mapping of childhood because I have self-sabotaging neural pathways that can be traced back. So you can trace alcoholism back in the family, not so much with drug addiction. Really? This is what freaks people out. This is new information, guys. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you some stuff today that might blow your minds, and the listeners are going to go, wow. But research has been done on it. So I'm born an alcoholic. I have self-sabotaging neural pathways ingrained into my brain, not floating around like billions of others. That's my go-to every time. I want to start building something up, looking great, and then I smash it down, and I don't know why. Self-sabotaging neural pathways. That's remapped uh, during the ages of one and six. 
from our parents or surroundings? How, how do we define child abuse? Anything less than nurturing with the alcoholic brain is child abuse. Get down off there, you stupid idiot. How many times have I told you, you clown? You're not that clever, Rob. All this stuff, the, the, my brain will take it. So that, that distorts my thinking. And it also puts me that the first time I take alcohol into my body, that's my drug of choice. That's my go-to because it makes me feel normal. Now, drug addiction. I believe you can't drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic, by the way. You can't do it. Mm. People go, oh, I was drinking all this time and I became an alcoholic. No, no, no. You're either an alcoholic from birth or you're not. You can drink as much as you want. You can't turn it. It's like turning wine into water. There's only Jesus can do that. I can't do it and you can't do it. Mm. But you can take enough drugs to become a drug addict. You see, when you take a drugs with the, with the neural pathways and the neurotransmitters and the lighting of the brain in the central nervous system, we like that stuff and we take more and more drugs and then we become it becomes a habit and a habit falls into an addiction. That's what happens. Now, once both, this is the important part, once alcoholics and drug addicts get to the point of crossing over the line, then it becomes one. Then everyone's the same. We have a disease of addiction and the treatment is exactly the same. But before that, it's, it's completely different. And that's why I call addiction. It is a disease because we have no choice and no control of what happens. And this is part of the stuff that people don't understand. You know, if only you can just stop for your kids, Rob. That's what my dad used to say to me. It's like, I didn't know how. You know, when I was struggling and suffering, nobody had the answers for me. Everyone knew the problem, you know, but did everyone have the answer? Well, well, not really. And that's why I studied it. Going back to the hypothalamus, which is back near the prehistoric brain, for a normal person, the hypothalamus is a fight or flight part of the brain. It's very good at what it do. But what happens is for the normal person, the hypothalamus tells the brain and goes to the prefrontal cortex, it's a survival instinct. I have to drink mm -hmm. water and eat food. That's why you'll often, you don't have to teach a baby how to eat. He's already got his fingers in his mouth trying to get something inside the body. It's a natural phenomenon that happens from birth. It just happens. But the alcoholic tells us to drink alcohol. And that's why an alcoholic can go days or a week without even eating or, or drinking water because it's purely alcohol. And people need to understand that, that part of the brain is fighting against you. You see, the prefrontal cortex has one job and has to come up with a solution to your problem as quick as it can. And it's good. It does. The only problem with the alcoholic brain is it's always alcohol for mm. whatever reason. Happy days, sad days, good days, bad days, rainy days, sunny. It makes no difference. Hypothalamus tells me to drink. My gut feeling every day is, is, is there every single day, nervous it is in the stomach. And what happens is the body becomes sick. The body then can't do without alcohol. You can't crave for anything that's not already in your body. People say that, oh, I've got the cravings. You can't. You've been sober for like six months. Right? You can't have cravings. What you have is a mental obsession. What you have is the mind from self-sabbing your, your pathway saying it's going to be different this time. I'm only going to drink one this time. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to find out this time. That's what it is. And as soon as it goes in my body, I become sick. And if I come off it, all of a sudden, I could probably die. Yeah. And that's the dangers. So that's our long, long-winded story, but that's how I define addiction. Yeah, that's great. It's it's kind of blowing my mind because you said that you were a doctor first and then you became homeless after that. So things had right. kind of gone downhill after becoming a doctor. But and right. it blew my mind when you first said that. But then I've been thinking about it and you're talking about how if this is if this is something that happens from birth, you said that you've got a, an a personality or a mind that makes you build things up just to tear them down. And that's kind of what that 
sounds like, right? You yeah. built yourself up to be a doctor and now all of a sudden things just kind of go to crap and, you know, now you're homeless and you got to build yourself back up again, hopefully uh, for permanent this time, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, you find out, I'm just going to say alcoholics, but I mean addicts and everybody, but you find out that uh, alcoholics are great starters. You know, if I come from an interview used to, if I, if I was using and drinking, man, you would go, oh, this Rob Kelly, man, he's awesome. He's perfect for the job. We've got to hire him. He's just, where's he been all our, our life? How can we manage without this guy? Because I'm looking really good to you in front of you two guys. Give me a month in your company. And he starts to go to shit. Missing days, drinking on the job. And it all goes to crap because I'm self-sabotaging. Why am I self-sabotaging? Because I'm not good enough. I don't feel worthy of it. And all this, and I start drinking to, to quash them thoughts. You know, today, one of the things that I found out, and I think it's very, very important, is every alcoholic and addict needs to realize four things. If you realize these four things, and it's kind of a joke, but kind of real. If you re realize, I'm never going to be blonde enough, tall enough, thin enough, or rich enough. End of story. You know, because I'm always, when I, when I come to America, it's like working away. And it's like, you know, if I got a hundred grand in the bank, Oh my God, wifey. I mean, that would be it. I'd stop striving. I'd stop worrying about money. I mean, I would just be, I'd just really chill out. And when a hundred grand comes, it's like, if I, if I could just get 200 grand in the bank, because we've got a hundred, but I could still go broke. And that carried on to a million and, and, it, and it still carries on. But you know, my biggest, my, my biggest fear today is heading up back on the streets again. And it's virtually impossible. Sometimes I'm having a question, a thing with my friend the other day, we're talking, we're talking about questions about addiction and everything. And, and, he, and, and he's talking about, what's your biggest fear? And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to end up on the streets again. You know, it's all going to go wrong because I'm looking pretty good. And he asked me a blatant question that Americans don't usually ask because it's usually hush. He said, how much have you got in your checking account? I said, what? He said, how much have you got in your checking account? And he pulled his phone out and he showed me how much he had. It was 4,500 and something. And he says, I'm comfortable. I have nearly five grand of savings. I have $190 in my checking account, but my savings account, I have five grand. What about you? So I said, well, in my checking account, I have $560,000. And in my other account, I have 1.4 million. And he looked at me as if I'd just gone fucking insane. <laughs> and, he, and, and I didn't get it. I mean, I didn't get it. And, he, and, he, and I was like, well, what? And he was like, have you just... He, he, he dies like, have you lost all fucking reality here? You were homeless. You couldn't afford a coffee. You've got more money than anybody else I know put together. But my mind doesn't tell me that. My mind still tells me that I'm going to end up on the streets because I'm not good enough. You know, and if when you find out that I'm really just, you know, false and, you know, I'm just I'm just making all this shit up. And if you only found out the real me, it would all go to pieces. And I live with that on a daily basis. And it's freaking horrible, guys. Mm. But I, I, I have to I get encouraged by people. I have to do my daily work that builds me up for the day. But tomorrow morning when I wake up, them thoughts are going to be there again. It's crazy. Yeah. Now, do you define that as the imposter complex or the imposter syndrome or anything like that? Of all the interviews I have done and all the podcasts and live radio and TV I have done, you're the only person to ask that question. That's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Because if you think I came from a trailer park, uh, council estate, but I went to Oxford, that's where it started. I, I didn't belong there. I was wearing uniforms that, that, that looked stupid. You know, all these guys had silver spoons in their mouth. 
all these uh, guys' fathers were captain of industries, and there's me, the imposter. And what happened is I took that imposter on board and ran with that for about 10 years and kept relapsing and relapsing because I used that as a kind of excuse that it, they're going to find out anyway. And it mixed with my self-sabotaging brain and it did me in. And that's why, Colt, you said I became this person, then I lost it all because I built it up and then I dropped it down again. Mm. And what I have to do this time is I have to believe who I am. I have to watch the internal dialogue. Gordon Ramsay, the guy on TV, the chef, is a good friend of mine. And I was sat in his house once and he said to me, and I've never forgot this because it's so true. And he said to me, Rob, do you know why I'm the best chef in the world? And I said, well, obviously, because you can cook really well. And he said, fuck no. How do I know who can cook out there? I said, well, why are you? He said, because I tell everybody I am. Mm. And that blew my mind. I was like, oh, my God. So I started to tell you what I'm the best addiction knowledge in the world ever. And people were like, well, okay, we can't agree with that. You're knowledgeable. You get people well. Yeah, we'll run with that. And it started to run and I started to believe it. And that's where my confidence comes from. I don't turn to ego. I don't have an ego since he took my kids off me. But the confidence I get is feeding off other people and I'm listening to my internal dialogue. Hmm. So obviously you had to shift that internal dialogue because before yes. the imposter in you said, you're going to fail, and that imposter or, or the, the, the thing driving you in, in your mind was going to make sure it happened. That's why you were self-destructing. That's why you're self-sabotaging. And, and so shifting, 100%. Yeah, shifting that internal dialogue has to be one of the key components to uh, really, I guess, be, have long-term success with uh, recovery. And so it, it sounds like that you are a perfect example of that. And I, it sounds like also that's why you're so passionate about being here today, being alive on this earth, on this planet, Yeah. because you did hit that rock bottom. You know what it can be like, you know, the turmoil. And it, it, apparently you still experience it on a daily basis as far as having to battle your own mind, but yeah. you're winning. And I think that's, that's, yes. that, that's the big difference maker. I think a lot of people look to be recovered or to be in recovery, however they put it, or to get mentally well if they have mental health issues otherwise and that means the absence of the problem as opposed to being able to manage and overcome in spite of the problem that that persists or that that exists in some form or another i think to, to understand internal dialogue you need to understand how powerful words are so i always explain first of all when i drop a pen on the floor i'm not a stupid idiot i used to say that you know drop oh you idiot i don't say that anymore yeah. i have to be careful of that and secondly i was in the office one day and uh David L uh, came in as a patient. We saw him. He went home. And uh, 10 minutes after he left the office, my assistant came in. And she looked like gray face. I'm like, are you okay? She went, David L has just left. They call it office. His dad's been in a crazy car accident on the freeway and he's died. It's been a fake bullet and he's died. I'm like, oh my God, let me call him up. So I called him up and, and I told him the bad news. And I said, you okay? And he's like, my body's shaking and crying. I can't stop sweating and I can't drive. And, and he got out and he's on the side of the road and he's just gone to pieces, man. I mean, you could imagine if I told you that, you'd go to pieces. And I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call somebody. I'm going to get them to you, you know, get you a ride home. He said, I can't drive my car. My body's gone to shit. So I put the phone down. A couple of minutes later, when I'm thinking who to call, my assistant come bursting through the door. He said, oh my God, Dr. Kelly, we've got the wrong one. It's David B., David B, he's on his way here now. That's why they called the office. And I'm like, shit. So I called David L back and I said, oh my God, we've got the wrong person, blah, blah, blah. And I put the phone down, but it got me thinking. They were only words to him. And yet his whole body went out of control. He had no control over his body. 
Mm. He shakes, his central nervous system was all alerted. His brain went into high performance of sadness. He shakes, he's sweating, his remorse, his tears, just from a couple of words that I said on the phone. And it got me thinking, you know, if we can do that much damage with words, how much good can we do when we start telling each other good words? And that's where the internal dialogue thing come from me. It's like, I'm amazing today. I'm fantastic. You go, oh, what's your ego? No. This is part of my recovery. You know, I have to believe what I do today <clears throat> was a God-given gift that I need to succeed in rather than build it up on my own and break it down again. Hmm. You see, I can do things that nobody else can out there. And I'm proud of that, you know, and, and I have to believe in that. So I try and say good things to myself all day. I still do what I call mirror work. I tell my patients to do, stand in front of the mirror every morning and say, I love you 10 times. And what happens is you, you, you're brainwashing the brain to, to, to believe this. Mm -hmm. Because if I tell you a lie often enough, you might believe it, you might not. If I tell you a lie real often enough, you will start to believe it. But guess what? If I tell you a lie real often enough, I'm going to start to believe it. Psychology 101. What we put into the brain, we start to believe. Repetition strengthens and confirms. Repetition strengthens and confirms. And if you can get this into the brain and make that the new neural pathways, these are the self-sabotaging neural pathways. That's my go-to every single time. And this is my good neural pathway. But this is the main neural pathway while I'm suffering from addiction. And what we do is this, so that the self-care is immediate reaction. And a self-sabotage becomes a secondary thought or a secondary reaction to the actual impulse of the brain going, where do we go now? Hmm. Well, you said your confidence has never turned to ego. How hard is that for most people? I mean, doesn't can't that become an issue? I think so. You know, I, but I also say this: it, it, I mean, it all depends what you suffered in your life, you know, and it all depends how good you are at what you do. Most people jump to ego straight away. You see, the difference for me between ego and confidence is confidence is knowing I can do something. Ego is wanting me to you to know that I can do something and trying to convince you that I can do something. I don't do that. I tell people, this is what I can do. This is how good we are, the Rob Trolley Recovery Group. Take it or leave it. And I often say to people when they come, when they come for the assessment, let me get one thing straight. I don't give a shit whether you come on board or not. That's not my problem. In fact, we turn down more people than we take on. But if I take you on, I have the confidence, you know, to take you through this program and the family and get you well into a place where you're back in the community and living a great life. But if you're not, I'm not going to touch you. And I think the egoistic person will take everybody coming through the door, thinking that it could you know, help everybody. I can't do that. There's only a certain amount of people I can help. You have to be ready. You have to be a certain category. You have to be a certain point in your life you know, for everything to work when you're coming. That's why our statistics are so high. I hear treatment centers, man, they're taking little Johnny in for his fourth time there, still paying 30 grand full price to go back into the treatment. It's like, guys, what are you offering here? I mean, what are you giving back to the community? You're giving nothing back to the community. We spent $250,000 last year going back into one-parent families in, in recovery. We're buying apartments, houses, you know, cars, holidays. They must have children. They must be one-parent family, and they must be in recovery. And we put that much back. If I had ego, I wouldn't do that. I'd keep it to myself and pretend maybe I did it, you know. So th there's a difference there, I think. Yeah. I would I would definitely agree with that. I think that there's a there's a motive behind ego as well that is obviously yes. more selfish than you know a confidence is is more of a display of 
your efficacy and, and what you're what you're good at, and you wear that. I think ego is something that you want to make sure that you press on to other people to make sure that they yes. know that your ego is big and that that you know you want to press it on them to how good you are. Uh, yes. But a lot of that, once again, what your that inner dialogue that you speak of. A lot of times we call that positive self talk, and and that positive self talk is so important because, like you said, what what you feed your mind, it's what, basically what you become. That's how your thought processes they they form and and they they co they, they become cohesive. And it forms a pattern of your personality and how you talk to yourself. Obviously, that is that's how you're going to uh, display yourself to the world, to you know, to some degree or another. Um, but positive self talk can go off the rails, and it, it for some reason it seems like we have a, more of a tendency, especially maybe for um, uh, people who uh, have a predisposition to addiction, um, that the, the self talk tends to go either to negativity or to excuses. And that's also where, you know, I, I like the use of reframing uh, as opposed to saying, well, I have you know this going wrong and this going wrong and this going wrong. So I have reasons to drink or reasons to do drugs. Um, reframe that and say, OK, well, these are the reasons why I don't have to do those things. And so you mentioned the 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 inner dialogue and, and how you treat yourself, the saying I love you 10 times in the mirror. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you were using that technique as, as a way to create those new neural pathways. Um, and, and that's that's a very simple technique. You know, when you start talking about neural pathways, you, you know, some people might be like, whoa, that's too heavy for me. I, I, you know, what do you think? I am some kind of a scientist or something. No, it, it's it's just it's what's actually happening technically in the brain when you use techniques such as that, which yeah. you know, it's, it's so easy to look in the mirror and, and to be able to do that. Practice it, although it might be kind of awkward at first for some people. Keep doing it because th that repetition is going to is going to cause changes in the brain. Um, so, what kind exactly. of other simple techniques can you just give us a you know um, some insight into and some of the practice that that you use with your clients or just in general practice that uh, might illuminate some of the the simplicity within this big term uh, neuroplasticity? Well, there's all this, you have to have a rigid uh, daily routine. That's very important. So you get up in the morning, you do your mirror work. You get in the morning if you do if you do prayers, you know you do that, or you get a, something that's that's like a routine in the morning, and then make your bed. Number one, make your bed. I mean that sounds crazy, but you just accomplished something you probably haven't done before. So you're already the brain's going, huh? I like this. I like this. You know, and then stick your routine: breakfast, work, lunch, uh, golf, uh, gym, dinner, bed. Put all that down. On your day-to-day -day list. Don't put too many things down uh, because you don't want to self-sabotage and then cross them off as you go through during the day. Now, here's the clever part that I come up with. If you don't cross all of them off and you miss one thing, that is a relapse. That's your brain going, ha, oh, I'm complacent now. Mm. I don't have to do that. Because alcohol will never kill the alcoholic. It's not what kills them. It's complacency. It's I don't really have to do that anymore. Well, the brain in a 24-hour period resets when we go to but it rests, it recuperates. So uh, if you listen to, to this just on a radio, guys, or on podcasts with no visual, I do apologize. But let me show you something. This is how I was born. This guy here will sleep with your wife, steal your girlfriend, rob your car, steal your drugs and make you look for him, help you look for him, and just be an out-and-out bad guy. That's me. That's how I was born. This here is my program that I work. This is the guy who's doing his mirror work, doing his own work in the morning, calling his sponsor, working with sponsors, working with clients. And I walk out the door like this. This guy here is going to help people. 
this guy here is going to have a great day. He's not going to relapse. He's going to do good for humanity. Hmm. But have a guess who wakes him up next morning? It's this guy. And unless I do exactly the same every single day, I will relapse and I will take people with me. So it's that, again, it strengthens and confirms that we have a, a daily reprieve. A reprieve means a stay of execution. That's what we have. And every 24 hours, we have to renew them thought patterns because this is how addiction and alcoholism works. I said to my patients, okay, tomorrow morning when you get up, the first thing you do, you go into the bathroom and instead of brushing your teeth, I want you to brush your toes. You go, what? You go, yeah, just get the toothbrush, get a spare toothbrush, brush your toes. You can brush your teeth after breakfast or whatever you do. The first thing you do in the morning, you go in and brush your toes. So they try it and they come in the next day because you have to see me every day when you come in. It's a 90-day program. So they come in every day. And uh, I say, how do you go? Oh, I, I did it. I did it this morning. I brushed my toes like for two minutes. And then I breakfast, brushed my teeth. I said, good. Make sure you keep doing it because this is addiction. I don't get that. Next morning, did the same. And they're laughing. They told me they're doing it. and thinking, that Dr. Rob's crazy. And, and after about a week, it starts to get a bit of a pain in the ass. Now it's not really that funny because it's been going on a bit, you know, and it's just, but now it's a bit of a pain, you know, I just don't want to do it anymore. But they're going to do it because I asked them to do it for at least a month. Come the third week, usually, someone has not had a bad, bad uh, someone's had a bad sleep, somebody overslept, disturbed night, verbal alarm has gone off, whatever it is, they stumble into the bathroom and they automatically brush their teeth. That's alcoholism and addiction. Mm. Unless you are daily aware to brush your toes, you're going to brush your teeth. Because that's an automatic neural pathway for the, for the alcoholic and addict is to drink and use and self-sabotage. Yeah. And you have to remember to brush your toes every day. And when I say that, because it's so absurd, when I say that, people go, you know, I got this morning, Rob, and I was just going to make a call, and all of a sudden I heard in my head, brush your toes. And it brought me right down to zero. And I started to make my daily list and get my day in order. Hmm. And the other thing to watch for as well, guys, is if you get up in the morning and do all the right stuff and you walk out the door and you stub your toe and you get to the car and you drop the keys and you get in the car and the radio's too loud, stop. You can start your day anytime you want. So start your day again. Hmm. Don't kill. Because many times people come to me and go, oh, Dr. Rob, I've had a real bad day yesterday. And my, my reply is always the same. Was it a bad day or was it five minutes that you dragged on all day? And it's usually five minutes. So we have to stop, pause, reset, carry on. Mm. So how do, you, how do you control anxiety or anxiousness if something happens in your day to where you can't get those normal things done that like brings that normalcy in life and keeps things in a good routine? How do you control your anxiousness and all that, those kinds of things that come along with that? So when we look at anxiousness, we've got to look at the central nervous system that's fired up or on edge, attached to the mind that's racing. So for me, um, for me, guys, not me. This is not a medical quote. I am not diagnosing. I am not giving information or advice. For me, forget the drugs. Forget the uh, prescription drugs. Two things, breath work, meditation. That's the two things that will slow everything down. So if I find myself going through a day, and I do sometimes when everything starts to fly, the phones are ringing, people asking me, they want me to do this, to do that, my day's crammed and everything, I go to the restroom. And I start to breathe. And I concentrate on the breathing. This is what the SAS and the Navy SEALs use in combat to make sure that they bring the central nervous system down. 
this is what the the, this, the top fire, fire guys do, the, the uh, shooters in the army, before they take that shot, is they breathe and calm everything down. And you'll find that the nervousness and the actions will start to go. If it continues, close your eyes and meditate for two minutes. Take yourself to a green field somewhere where you can feel the sun. The mind will go there with you. And all you need is four minutes in the restroom on your own. It will go, believe me. And it will say, well, it can. That's not true. The guys that say that haven't tried it. It's absolutely a miracle worker because that's what the body's designed for. The breath work, when you concentrate on it, slows everything down. And that's all anxiousness is. It's all everything like stood on a, a hot plate. Everything is in the central nervous system is jiggling around and you're nervous and everything. Just slow everything down. What's the worst thing that can happen to me? Hmm. That's what I always ask myself. It's interesting. You, you mentioned visualization and, and meditation. Um, do you practice any kind of mindfulness? Like just, it sounds like you're paying attention to the breath, but you're also using a visualization, which I love. My, my personal place is the beach. And when I go to the beach in my mind, when I need to calm myself down, of course, you, I do the breathing because the breathing not only has psych psychological effects, but it also has physical effects to slow, you know, the parasympathetic nervous system inacts, slows the, you know, the, the stress hormones down. It, it, it tends to calm you down. But I also like going to that happy place and using all five of my senses in my imagination to smell the, the ocean and to feel the sand on my toes, to feel the sun on my face, to hear the birds and the waves and so on and so forth. Uh, but do you ever just use uh, simple mindfulness and, and just kind of uh, be curious of the thoughts as they arise in your head and watch them come and go as if they were the waves themselves? Always. I use yeah. a stream, okay. a stream going past me. And uh, for bad thoughts, I use dark stream. And then I watch it get lighter and lighter. And by the time it gets to a clear water, I'm usually at your point when you're at the beach. It's like everything's clear and calm now. Because we have to understand how the mind works, you know, especially the alcoholic mind. Uh, I was still outside a liquor store one day. It was 5.30 in the morning. Uh, I have, uh, it was two below zero. It was snowing. It's freezing cold. I have a pair of shorts on, a vest, and a pair of flip-flops, and I'm sweating profusely. I know from my experience I'm going into DTs. Mm. So the guy opens the door. I know if I don't get a drink inside me in the next, a drink inside me, let me emphasize that, in the next couple of minutes, I am going to go into some sort of fit or convulsion. The guy opens the door. He knows me, this guy. He's not supposed to serve alcohol till 10, but he knows me. I put my 10 pound on the counter and he said the same, Rob. And I said, yes, please. And he put the bottle of vodka on the counter. I reached out and I grabbed the handle of the bottle and this was my reaction. The sweating stopped. The shaking stopped. My headache went away. I looked at the bottle. I looked at the guy and then back to the bottle and I thought to myself, it's not the alcohol. It's me. See, I didn't need alcohol in my body. I need my mind to think I have the alcohol. Mm. It's the same with heroin. You can, we did a, 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 we ride a couple of heroin and so we showed them bags of heroin and the brain lit up just as much as when they took it. Isn't that crazy? So you have to be aware, aware of the mind, whether it be good or bad, constantly be in, in that state of mindfulness. And that's one of the keys to successful a uh, successful life as an ex-problem drinker or an ex-addict uh, is that mindfulness. And the mind is very clever. People don't know this. You know the secret to life is quantum physics. Quantum physics tells me, let's say a basketball court, for instance, I can be 25 places at the same time on that basketball court. It's a fact. It's a well-known science. 
what do I do? Well, I want to be over near the goal. So when I get the ball, I can just pop it in the net and I'm the hero of the game. Can you visualize yourself there? Well, yeah, because I can be up to 25 places. Of course I can. Walk over and take position. What? Walk over and take that position. Because what you can visualize in your mind, you can hold in your hand. And people don't know this. Oh, yeah, but you know, no, stop. Stop. You're making things too complicated. The alcoholic brain's always looking for the next fix, always looking for the next sparking of the brain. What can that be? It's industry, it's life, it's love lives, it's friendships, it's success. It's dropping down after success and jumping back up again. Visualize what you want. Walk over and take that position, guys. Don't audition. Don't look for it. Don't make excuses. You can visualize yourself there. In life, you can visualize yourself there going out with that girl, buying that car, having that job. You know, and, and this is true. It happens on a daily basis in the in my company. It's what's what we tell patients to do. We had a guy at our house one day. We picked him up from the L.A. County Jail. He had an orange jump shoe on. He was in a mess. He, he, I, I recognized him because I'd seen him on a couple of movies that I'd seen. The judge said to me, Dr. Kelly, I will release him into your care, but let me tell you something. If he goes missing or if we find him out of his head somewhere, I'm going to call you back in, Dr. Kelly, and there will be consequences. I'm like, shit, hang on a second. <laughs> so we got the team together like, guys, are we going to do this? And I was like, oh, wow, well, let's think about it. So I said, okay, yeah. So we went back in and we signed a piece of paper. We turned around to this guy and he had a smile on my face. And my friend went, click, and put some handcuffs on him. He said, come on, we have, a, we have a private plane. We're going to take you back to Dallas. And that's what we did. And we worked on his mind. And we took him to places that he's never been before here. And he visualized being one of the best, biggest movie stars again, bigger than he'd ever been. Because America loves a comeback story. And we drilled him every day to go there to the studio and to walk around and to make this move. And we didn't know what it was going to be, but we took him there and we complimented him and we told him things were going to happen. And we worked on his uh, a drug addiction and the drug addiction went. And two weeks before he left us, this is a true story, down at the gate, the, the buzzer went to the gate and my driver went down and he picked this big envelope up, big package, and he brought it back and he gave it to me. He said, this is for that guy. And I walked into our main room and he sat there and he's looking healthy and he's back to, you know, he's been restored. He's recovered health and state of mind. But and I give him the envelope and he opens it and he pulls it out and he looks at it and he looks at me and smiles and go, oh, my God, it's a script for Iron Man. And I said, yeah, Robert, I told you, I told you that you could do this. And we do that on a daily basis because we understand how the mind works. Yeah, as you were telling that story, I was wondering I know. if this was the if I was on the same page and, and who that was going to be. That's that's amazing and such a comeback story, such a yes. comeback. And of course, I've never had this kind of intimate detail about him, but just watching the transformation that took place because it it, it looked like he was going to end up being one of those that just didn't make it back, not just back to yeah. maybe the big screen, but back in life in general. It just looked like he was losing every every grip that he was that he that he was having and I guess he himself had to hit rock bottom just like most addicts do before they yeah. can actually see the addiction for what it is but um, with stories like that dr. Rob and, and just the, the the way that people can turn things around and, and the experiences they have once they do recover um, why is that why is there such a stigma 
around addiction? Why are we afraid to talk about it? Why are we afraid to admit that it is a disease of the mind that transforms into a disease of the body? Uh, can you give us any insight into, into where we're going wrong there and how we can kind of shift those perceptions to align more with the need that people have when they suffer from addiction? Most of it is education with the general public. You have to, you have to understand that alcoholism and addiction is not a behavioral problem. Okay. This is not a choice that people have. You see, what people see is they see, you know, the, the great man across the road who goes down and down and down. He leaves, the kids leave. Everyone sees the sob stories. The guy living on the bridge on, on news because they want to get rid of all the homeless. They see people home. They see all these people going through stuff and friends that are self-sabotaging. That's the only part they see. What they don't get exposed to is the success people that really go for this deal. And the reason why that people are not exposed to that is there's no money in recovery. There's money in sickness. Just ask the pharmaceutical companies. Just ask the treatment centers who have a revolving door for the patients. You know, they don't offer a money back guarantee like us. You have a revolving door. And that's why we don't talk about it because there's no, there's no money in it. We need more success stories out of that. I've spoke to, we've worked with everybody. That's everybody from the local janitor to, the, to some of the biggest names in the world. And you know something? There's only three people that ever said mention them. One of them is Robbie Downey Jr. The other one is Marshall Mothers, Eminem. And the third one is Eddie Van Halen. That's the only three people that said mention me. Where can I mention you? Do not mention me on live TV or national TV. Or where can I? Mention them to small people around you in recovery to give them uh, encouragement and excitement. See, even them don't want to go to the nationals with it. Nobody wants to go up and say, look at me, a success story, because it's still looked at as a dirty illness that is a choice. I mean, can you imagine me having cancer and people coming up on the street? Why are you homeless, Rob? I have cancer. What? Let's get you into somewhere straight away. This is crazy. My parents want to throw me out. My wife wants to throw me out if I have cancer. They all feel sorry for me. There's no cure for cancer. There's no cure for alcoholism and addiction. But yet we're seen on two different levels. And it's purely down to lack of information. Nobody, the layman person on the street, you ask them what alcoholism is. Try this sometimes, both of you guys, when you go out somewhere and you meet someone. Can you tell me what an alcoholic is? And I bet you nine out of ten times they'll tell you it's somebody who drinks too much alcohol. Alcohol has this much to do with alcoholism and drugs have this much to do with drug addiction. It's got nothing to do with it. I have a mind problem. I have a disease of the brain. But my brain wants to kill me and make it look like an accident. And nine out of ten times with drug addicts and alcoholics, that's what we see. Hmm. Or we committed suicide. My wife's brother was an alcoholic. And he was up and down and nobody helped him. And one day, they all went to a nice party at my, uh, my dad's house or my, my uh, in-law's house. And he was there. I never met Michael. But Michael was there and uh, he didn't drink. He says, no, I'm back sober again. I'm trying my best. It's my third day sober or something. And everybody was so happy. So we arranged to meet him the next day, and he was so happy, so glad. That guy went home, grabbed a gun, and shot himself in the face. Why? Because nobody understood his disease. So what do we do with stuff like that? We sweep it under the carpet. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to have the conversation. In my podcast, we talk about that stuff. We talk about the stuff that you don't really want to talk about. We talk about families turning their back on people because they don't understand it. We see people on a daily basis committing suicide and killing themselves because they can't stand it anymore living like this. We're like lepers. We, we, are, we are still where the gay population was 20 years ago. 
now everyone accepts gay people, and, and rightly so. But that's, that's where we are. We're back when the AIDS thing come out. Nobody wants to know us. Nobody understands us. Nobody wants to associate or talk about it. And yet alcoholism and addiction kills more people than cancer and lung disease, you know, and, and all the other diseases put together. You see, my, my brother-in-law, my brother he didn't go down as an alcoholic who couldn't live anymore. He went down to suicide. Mm. So the statistics never get reported. You know, little Johnny who drove his car into a tree because he can't stand living any fucking more because he can't fucking live with the shit that's going on inside his head goes down as a car accident. And this is what we don't understand. We did a report in the local, uh, in Dallas, Richardson Hospital, uh, looking at people coming in on a Friday and Saturday night. 97% of the people walking through an ER door, the, the ER on a Friday and Saturday night, 97% had alcohol or drugs to excess in the body. 75% of people on death row have no idea what happened at the scene of the crime. They were wasted. This can't continue, guys. We have an epidemic on our hands. Talk about a pandemic. We have an epidemic. So many of this, oh my God, COVID's killed 20,000 people. We fucking lose 20,000 people across the world on a day. But nobody wants to talk about it. Hmm. Everyone wants to put a mask on and walk around and say we're doing something. No, you're not. This is the welcome to my world, guys. You think this is a pandemic? Welcome to my world. Why I see this shit on a daily basis? And we fight to bring it into the news, but nobody wants to know. There's no money in it. The pharmaceutical companies do not have a remedy for my disease. And that's the problem. Wow. I do have a question about the revolving door thing, though. You you kind of said that some of these rehab facilities are basically a revolving door. And I, I, I kind of think you're alluding to that's by design, that they expect these people to kind of come back. So they're not getting fully recovered while they're there. They know they're going to be coming back, which is more income and those kinds of things. Is that true? Is that right? Is that what you were trying to say? Well, at the end of the day, they're running a business. And, and you know, but the only thing is, mm. just like the pharmaceutical company, they're preying on the sick. I mean, I mean, you know, once you get hooked on a pill, you ain't coming off it. So the pharmaceutical companies are great, you know? I did a piece on national news about eight months ago, national to do with Purdue, the, the drug makers. And uh, I absolutely slaughtered them and their solicitor, their attorney on live TV. The next day they filed for bankruptcy. Now I'm not saying I did that, but I'm sure it had a piece, you know? So these revolving doors need to stop. These come in, come out, come in, come out, come in, come out. You know, little Johnny goes back there for his fourth time. That's why insurance don't cover it anymore. Why should an insurance company cover little Johnny going back in treatment for his fucking seventh time? Right. He's like, what's going on? I mean, what? Mm -hmm. You know, if you send him for an illness or psychiatric hospital and they come out and you keep coming back, keep coming back, there'd be questions asked to them doctors as what are you doing wrong? Nobody's asking the treatment centers. And I get people calling out, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, this treatment center's like that. Where's your money? Mm. Where's your refunds? Put your money where your mouth is, guys. Nobody does it. Yeah. Nobody does it. Right. Well, what, they're running a business and profitable. Right. Well, with a mind that already has issues, isn't it more damaging for somebody like that to know that, okay, well, if I get bad again, I got somewhere to go versus, you know, just being recovered in the first place? <laughs> I mean, that, that seems like it'd be more damaging to the mind in general. Got to give them a crush right. to fall back that's on. That's the second yeah. question. That's the fucking amazing question. Exactly. What the fuck is relapse prevention? Right. What? Yeah. What are you talking about? Why are you putting that in the subconscious brain? Are you going to relapse? So let's prevent that from that. Prevent what? If, you, if you've taken a, if a psychic change, spiritual experience, DNA change, there's no such thing as relapse. Why are you talking about that? Well, that's what 40% of the treatment is. 
is 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 giving you information, you know, for it not to happen again. It's like my brain has changed. The knee-jerk reaction has to be that the health neuropathways, the self-care neuropathways, if it's not, hey, I can stay sober for a week, a month, three months, 90 days, but sooner or later I'm going to relapse. So let me, let's talk about relapse prevention. What? I don't get it. But Colt, you are so right. You know, let's prep the brain to, to uh, uh, self-sabotage, you know? Well, you can't do it. Well, you can't stand that pink clown. Well, you know, you're going to relapse eventually. Well, relapse is part of recovery. Relapse is part of the disease. It's not part of the solution. This is what people need to understand. Mm. If I tell you you're a piece of shit every day, Colt, in a week or month's time, you're going to start to believe it. If I told you you're never going to see me again because you are you are done with this shit. You are done with recovery. Get out there and live your life because life's for living. There's a good chance you're going to stay sober. But with the addicted brain, we can't get well and sit in our one-bedroom apartment on on, uh, on government benefits, hoping we'll keep sober. We have to strive for the next best thing in our life, and and that that the addicted brain is always hungry, always hungry for something, and that's what we need to do. Mm. So stop putting stop putting self-sabotaging thoughts into these guys' brains, you know, because they will self-sabotage. Well, the addicted brain is always hungry. It, it always needs to be yes. fed, right? It, it, yes. it drives. It always needs to be fed. Yeah. What's the next thing today? How can I? You see, here's my daily routine. I have to compliment three people a day. I have to do it. You know, mm. I have to be kind to people. I have to make people laugh when I go out. I have to do all these things on a daily basis. It's like being on show. You know, I put this show and I go out and I make people's day. We went into HEB, which is a supermarket in, in Texas. And the, the, I was, we're getting this cake done for a one-year birthday of a, a guy we worked with, a sober. And uh, while we're doing it, this old lady come from the back and me and her was bantering. If I was 50 years younger, she was saying, I'd be dating you. And I'd be like, you'll be so lucky. And we're just having this banter and she laughed. And, and I took the, we took the cake over and the guy said, you're going to have to come back tomorrow. We're going to put some writing on. So I went back the next day and uh, I was the guy was serving me and this old lady come back. And said, oh, can I have a quick word with you? So I said, yeah. So we went to the side of the counter and she said, I want to thank you. I was like, what for? For the cake? She went, no. My husband died three months ago, and today was the first day I could actually get in work without breaking down and crying. And meeting you yesterday, I, I laughed so much. I just want to thank you for making my day. Wow. Really? I had no idea that I'd done that. Can you imagine how many other people we can affect if we always uplift people, always try to make people laugh? This is what life's about. That's what I base my life on. You see... You know, the TV and the radio and the practice and the pride profile and the celebrity status, that's, that, that pays the mortgage, guys. And it keeps my wife happy. I'm in the trenches with these guys, making them laugh. I'm in the trenches every day at down and out meetings going, hey, guys, you know something? You can do this. Look at me. And belief with the alcoholic and addict is nine-tenths of the law. Belief that I can do this. Belief that I can succeed. If you tell something, often enough, they're going to believe it. That's how you brainwash people. You tell them over and over and over again, you know, and the more hours you get, it's like becoming a surgeon. You need 50,000 hours of training to become a surgeon. You need 50,000 hours of telling people they're amazing for them to think they're amazing. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about them. They have the power. They, you know, if you can relate to these guys, watch a movie out there called, uh, oh, I am... Oh, God, I forgot what their name is. Let me try and come back to it. I Am Pretty. Watch I Am Pretty, guys, if you can. It's a comedy. Look for the underlying message in there. 
She has a, a bang on her head and she sees herself in the mirror as this skinny, beautiful girl. But everyone else sees her as the same person she was, this overweight, clumsy girl. But people start treating her as the thin, beautiful, intelligent girl because she believes she is herself. Mm. That's a big, big message there, guys. Yeah. Yeah, that is huge. Dr. Rob, we want to be mindful of your time, and we're about to come up on on your your uh, your deadline here for for our amount of time that we have. Uh, before we we turn it over to you to to give us all of your info for the listeners to to track you and to follow you to find you, especially if anyone needs any help with addiction recovery, I uh, just want to say we thank you a lot for coming on the show today. Your your passion and your excitement, your drive, your expertise, it all just kind of coalesces and. It makes for a great presentation, makes for a great discussion and conversation. I, this has been a, a great time. Um, you make it both fun and very informative and I- inspiring. And I, I know Thank that a so lot much. of our, our, I know a lot of our listeners are also going to be inspired by, by your words and your passion as well. So if you could give everyone, all of our listeners, your information, how they can find you, how they can find help and anything that you'd like to, uh, to share with us right now before we go. So the quickest thing to do, guys, go to the website. It's Rob Kelly. I'm an alcoholic, so I spell my name with two Bs. R-O-B-B-K-E-L-O-Y. Uh-huh. RobKelly.com. Uh, go on to Facebook, Dr. Rob Kelly. Give me a, give me a like or a friend. Uh, anywhere on social media or anywhere on the internet, do a Google search, Dr. Rob Kelly. You'll find out. If you're bored one day, go on Amazon. Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking was one of the last things my daughter said to me 25 years ago. There's a book there, all proceeds, not profits, all proceeds go back into the community. And i tell you what, guys, you know, I'm so in tune with all these things that I'm doing at the moment, podcasts and TVs and all that. Listen, if you're out there struggling or if you're out there going, well, you know, that all sounds good, but who can I call? This is my personal cell phone number. Call me. I'll give you a 10-minute conversation that will change your freaking life. Believe me. 214 0210 is my personal phone number. Please don't give it out to everybody. Use it if you're listening to this show. Just listen to this show. Get the number. Call me. And let's have that conversation. This is only for James and Colts listeners. Call me, man. It's not going to cost you anything. We're going to have a 10, 15 minute chat. I'll change your life, I promise. Wow. Perfect. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Rob Kelly. Dr. Rob, we really appreciate you once again. That's right. <laughs> Flexing for the for the show. We appreciate that, man. We appreciate your time, your much valued time, and uh, have a great day, man. Keep kicking ass out there. It's, it's awesome work that you do. Thanks, guys. Good to see you guys. Speak soon. All right. Thank you, sir. And we are out. Thanks again to Dr. Rob Kelly, and thank you, CEP listener. Remember that word of mouth is like a long trip on the wagon to us. So don't forget to tell your friends and fam about the great variety you hear right here on the CEP. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you consume your podcast to keep the variety coming straight to your ear holes with the automaticity. Also on that note, when you go to Apple Podcasts, it would help us immensely if you would give us a five-star rating while you are there to show your love for the CEP. And speaking of love, you know that we love when you give us all of your love on the socials, when in fact you do give us all of your love on the socials. So please be sure to give us all of your love on the socials and be sure to visit the launching pad for all things cerebral at thecepodcast.com. And of course, if you need to contact us, you can do that at cerebral at thecepodcast.com. 
Also remember to pick up your official CEP merch at buyjack.com slash CEP. So get online and get you and your loved ones that CEP gear today. That's all we've got this time, folks. So until next time, be sure to keep those big, beautiful brains of yours nice and warm out there. See ya.